Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast presented by MyBookie. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined today by Matt Eddy. It's been a busy, busy week in baseball. First and foremost on the field, there's 10 days left in the regular season. 22 of the 30 teams are within two games of a playoff spot. Obviously exciting times on the field and off the field. We had big news this week. The expanded postseason this year would include no off days during the division series, championship series, or wild card round. JJ Cooper and I went on a podcast and discussed what that meant for this year's postseason field. And uh, just to give you an idea of how quickly things can change on that podcast, I talked about the Astros as a team who, given the way their pitching had lined up, given health and struggles from some guys, I thought it was a situation that might not be advantageous to them. Well, since then, Jose Urquidy came back and delivered seven innings with one earned run allowed and seven Ks against the Rangers. And Lance McCullers came off the DL and threw seven shutout innings as well, with Justin Verlander due to come off the IL potentially. All of a sudden, that outlook has changed. If McCullers and Urquidy are fully healthy and performing like that to go with Granke and Verlander, they're in good shape. So it just goes to show again, this year, so many things are fluid. Nothing seems guaranteed for that long. And it's going to be an interesting postseason. But Matt's joining me today to discuss the long-term implications of an expanded postseason. Rob Manfred, the commissioner, spoke to a virtual panel hosted by Hofstra's Business School, where he laid out that there is momentum toward keeping an expanded postseason beyond 2020. Matt, there's been a lot of debate about this. I put an article up today at Baseball America discussing what I feel like a better scenario would be to expand the postseason. But just on the whole, where are you in this debate? Because everyone has different perspectives. You have a long-term view of the game, good historical perspective. How do you view a potentially expanded postseason with a 162-game regular season, whether it's 2021, 2022, in all future years? Yeah, I understand why they're expanding the field this year, given the, the volatile nature of the short season. Um, and just historically speaking, you know, playoff, playoffs always expand. <laughs> There's always money to be made. Uh, so I think inevitably there will be some playoff creep in the future. Um, 16 teams to me, I, I come down more on the traditional side, thinking that that's probably too many. You know, even if you expand to 32 teams, you know, half the teams making the playoffs isn't doesn't align too much with baseball tradition but i think for me you know beyond the arguments of baseball tradition i just go back down to ensuring the highest quality on the field at prime time the playoffs are baseball's time to showcase the best teams they have to offer and after a 162 game season the teams who have made it are all undeniably worthy you can't fluke your way into a postseason spot after six months and for me, really going back and crunching the data, that to me just solidified this. If a 16-team postseason field had been in place in previous years, we would have had a team with a losing record in the playoffs 18 of the last 22 seasons that since Major League Baseball expanded to 30 teams in 1998. We would have had a team with a losing record in the postseason every year since 2013. That includes teams won 76 games, 77 games. We're not talking about teams who won 80 and 82 here. We're talking about teams that won 76, 77, 78 games. 
And for me, it just cheapens it. It devalues a 162-game regular season, and it makes the playoffs a participation trophy. Beyond that, I'm concerned about the economic ramifications for this. There's With a field structure the way it is now, there's no strategic advantage to winning your division. Now, there's a lot of pride that goes in that. These players, these coaches, these managers, these are some of the most competitive people alive. Of course, they want to go out there and win every game they play. They're going to try. But from a front office perspective, and we see so many teams thinking more strategically and analytically now, if there's no strategic advantage to winning 95 games compared to 85 games, the incentive is lessened to go spend money on a big free agent, trade your top prospects to go get a difference-making player. And for me, the less money, the less transactions, the less teams are trying to actively improve themselves, that harms the competitive integrity of the game. So that's my biggest concern with this is it incentivizes a race to the middle and takes teams who just aren't very good and rewards them. Yeah, I think that's all fair. Like, as I was kind of sketching what some benefits of a 16-team playoff field might be, you know, the one thing that strikes me is with the unbalanced schedule the baseball has now, like, all these teams are competing for the same wild card but playing dramatically different schedules. I think expanding the field would help balance some of the unbalanced schedule bias a little bit. Uh, you know, right now teams play 47% of their games against divisional opponents, but, you know, the quality of, of their opponents varies dramatically by season, even by division. So I see that as one potential benefit. Um, I also think the MLB postseason product is very good. I mean, you know, September and October baseball is my favorite baseball. So in, in that sense, more of that would be better. You know, there is a point where it would be oversaturation. Um, more playoff shares available to players um, even if salaries are driven down during the regular season to some measurable effect there stands to be more playoff money to be earned and um, more opportunity for players to build establish and build postseason legacies which I see as being um, a big part of how we're going to view players value in the future for awards for Hall of Fame consideration etc. There's no question there are some pros here Postseason shares currently are tied to postseason gate revenue. So more postseason games, more money players receive as part of their postseason shares. And as I mentioned, here we are 10 days until the end of the season. 22 of the 30 teams are within two games of a playoff spot. More teams having a chance. There's going to be more interest later in the season. I get that. I think those are two solid arguments in favor. And I understand the perspective of, okay, maybe this is something that can help grow the game, particularly for the younger crowd. If, you know, there's more teams still invested and still going for a playoff spot into late September than there currently are. By the same token, I, again, I just worry about making the playoffs a participation trophy. And if we're talking about 16 teams out of 30 making the postseason, Major League Baseball not only has the longest regular season of any of the four major sports, it also has the highest amount of teams making the postseason of any of them. The NFL is 12 out of 32 teams, although that's going to expand to 14, but right now it's 12 out of 32. NHL is 16 out of 31. NBA is 16 of 30. So Major League Baseball matches the NBA, which plays an 82-game season that, in case you haven't noticed, no one pays attention to until Christmas. Major League Baseball's greatest asset is its regular season and ensuring that that maintains some value that maintains some worth 
And I think devaluing that is not worth the pros that come out of expanding the postseason. Again, especially when you talk about the way it's structured and how it would incentivize teams to race to the middle as opposed to the top for the most part. And also just, again, 76 and 77 win teams in the playoffs. That's not a positive. That's laughable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, it would almost – some elements of your proposal where you just create bigger divisions, I, I kind of like that. But I know the, the travel and time investment of, of playing, like, in the same time zone now is very beneficial to teams. So I understand why they do what they do with the schedule. I will say transportation's gotten a lot better than it was back when uh, the divisions were as large as they were and they were able to pull it off. Mm. I just feel like, again, you can check it out on baseballamerica.com. I kind of laid out a proposal where basically you have two 18 divisions in each league. Expansion is required, or you could contract theoretically, but we know baseball won't do that. But in theory, you could. And it's two 17 divisions in each league. Division winners get first round buys and incentivizes teams to go for the division title. And just the ripple effects down the line encourage teams again to try and win games as it goes to, as opposed to play for the middle as a 16 team format like we have this year would again i understand the 16 team format for this season given all the circumstances there's a lot of changes just go with it but in a regular year where you have a full 162 games to prove yourself it just doesn't make sense and i think and i hope that enough people will speak up to really drive that point home. But at the end of the day, Major League Baseball is going to see the dollar signs. They're going to go get them. And we have to see how this shakes out. Postseason cannot be expanded without agreement from the players' union. But again, the way negotiations have gone recently has been Major League Baseball more often than not gets what Major League Baseball wants. So if they want an expanded postseason, one's coming. I think now it's just a matter of how do you do that without cheapening your regular season product and incentivizing race to the middle. To me, I, to piggyback on that, the painfully obvious compromise is shortened to one, 154, which was what it was pre-expansion era. So 154 regular season games, um, expand the wild card round to best of three and expand the LDS to best of seven. Like, to me, that's the painfully easy way to take what we the good thing we have now, expand it, but not ruin my concern with that is it's still, if you still have a 16-team bracket, it doesn't incentivize teams to go for No, it's not. It's the same, num- same number of teams as now. Just you play oh. more wildcard games and more division series games. Got it. Shorter season. Potential. The one thing that I've thought about with that is you're taking eight games off the regular season. And say you're someone who's a, a type of player who has that 15-year career, that 10-15 year career. They're going to be in a Hall of Fame consideration. You know, mm-hmm. we've seen – from strikes and just other work stoppages, players losing, say, 80 games, 100 games in the middle of their careers affects whether or not they make the Hall of Fame. Fred McGriff is the best example of this. He's at 493 career home runs. He lost games to the 94-95 strike. If he has those games, he gets to 500, and he's probably in the Hall of Fame. So the thing I'm wondering is baseball is such a numbers-driven sport, particularly when it comes to players getting into the Hall of Fame. I'm wondering if there's pushback from players there just because all of a sudden if you have eight less games a year, you have a, let's call it a, you know, 15 year career. You're looking at 120, again, depending on how many seasons you play, 120, 130, 140 less games to add to your numbers. That can be the difference between having 485 career home runs and 500 career home runs. That can be the difference between 
2,900 hits and 3,000 hits. I just, I wonder from a player perspective, knowing what it means to get into the Hall of Fame, the value of that, both for their career and also financially. I mean, Hall of Famers write books, they make more television appearances. It's, it's a value to the rest of their lives. I wonder if it's worth it for them because losing those extra 100, 150 games at the end of regular season games over the course of their career could be more detrimental than helpful. Yeah, I think we would have to recalibrate how we view good, you know, what is considered excellent career and seasonal production. But yes, it would impact bottom lines. Either way, this is going to be a fascinating year for baseball on so many different levels. When the 2021 CBA expires, we have the professional baseball agreement expiring this year. The minor leagues are going to look different. Now we're seeing the postseason could look different. A lot of things that have been fairly stable in baseball over the years are going to change. And, you know, for the record, I want to make this clear. There are some changes I'm absolutely in favor for. I think the universal DH has been awesome. And I thought it was going to be that way before the year. It has been great. It has made the National League product so much more entertaining and just a better product. So I'm not opposed to change in the sake of, for the sake of tradition. I'm opposed to change if it, again, incentivizes mediocrity. And that's what this postseason alignment would do over the course of 152 games. That's my opposition. So we'll see what happens with all these changes. Uh, but before we jump into our next topic, our top rookies, quick word from our sponsor, Keeps. Guys, a lot of our identity is wrapped up in our hair, how we style it before going out, how it looks and feels after a fresh cut. That's why when those late 20s, early 30s start to hit and those first signs of hair loss start showing up, it's pretty upsetting. Let's face it, none of us ever really want to go bald. Thankfully, now there's Keeps, the simple and easy way to keep your hair. Keeps makes it super easy, just a quick doctor's visit online. Get your hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They deliver your medication every three months, so you don't have to worry about pharmacy checkout lines, waiting for an appointment at a doctor's office. Give it a try and find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors. More than 100,000 men trust Keeps for their hair loss prevention medication. Treatment starts at $10 a month. Plus, for a limited time, you can get your first month free with a great promo offer here at Baseball America. It's a great deal. You don't want to miss out on it. If you're ready to put a stop to your hair loss, go to keeps.com slash baseballamerica. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash baseballamerica to receive your first month of treatment free. Once again, that's keeps.com slash baseballamerica. Give it a try. You won't be sorry. And let's put a stop to that hair loss. Matt, one of the things that we have seen this year has been more major league debuts than ever before in terms of how many have happened in this compacted time frame between COVID-19 related injured list stints, pitchers getting hurt at an elevated rate. The rate of rookies and call-ups we've seen this year per month is higher than in any previous year. Uh, Josh Norris has crunched some of the numbers and we're going to come out with those shortly, I believe. Um, but with that, we've seen a number of rookies really, really step up. I want to start with our Rookie of the Year contenders, 10 days to go in the regular season. Luis Robert has been playing in the spotlight, being on the team with the best record in the American League, playing center field, doing some jaw-dropping things. On the other end of it, Kyle Lewis, by pretty much any measure, has been the better player. He's currently got a 40-plus point edge in batting average, a 70-plus point edge in on-base percentage, a 70-plus point edge in OPS playing in a much, much, much more difficult park for hitters, T-Mobile Park. It's in my head at Safeco Field still. So he's put up better numbers across the board in much, much, much more pitcher-friendly environments, both his home field and the road stadiums in the West. 
Uh, his OPS plus, I believe, was 142 at last check versus 120 for Robert. So Lewis is actually outperforming Robert by a pretty wide margin. And oh, by the way, his defense has been absolutely insane. We saw his latest catch that had Mike Cameron and Ken Griffey Jr. chiming, chiming in. His defense has been every bit as jaw-dropping as Luis Roberts. I know defensive metrics say Roberts better overall, but defensive metrics are kind of a mess, and you just watch it. These are two fantastically gifted defensive center fielders. So on the one hand, you have the more prolific player in terms of market size, first place, more eyes on him. But then you have the better player. For me, I'm always going to pick the better player. And at this point, as of this recording, 10 days until the end of the regular season, Kyle Lewis has been the better player by a wide margin. How do you shape this rookie of the year race up? And ultimately, what do you think voters are going to do? Well, I think you left out a pretty uh, a key contender would be the Padres' Jake Cronenworth. For I'm me. sorry, I'm talking for the American League. Oh, we're doing AL only? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about the American League Rookie of the Year award. Okay, <laughs> okay. I, I only think in overall terms because our award is. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think Lewis does have does have big advantages where it counts the most. I mean, specifically on base percentage. I think it's hard to overlook a gap that big. You know, I don't have a good feel for which is the better defensive player. Um, but I think Lewis, Lewis is the better offensive player this season. So I just uh, checked it to give you the updated uh, OPS plus numbers. Lewis is at 146. Robert's at 118. Again, I, the gap is larger than I think a lot of people realize. As of right now, again, this can change over the next 10 days. If Lewis falls into an epic slump and Robert gets hot again, which he's very capable of, it will be a very different discussion. But as of right now, this is pretty much a slam dunk for me. But again, I do want to point out Luis Robert is tremendously talented. This is a fantastically gifted ball player who we felt was one of the top three prospects in all of baseball coming into this year. He's been going through a slump right now. We see a lot of young players every single year have these where the league adjusts, they got to adjust back, and you trust he eventually will. He's still a tremendous player. This has not changed our outlook on him. It's just for purposes of the American League Rookie of the Year Award, it's Kyle Lewis with 10 days to go in the season by a fair margin. And, and it's going to take a lot for Robert to kind of close that gap. Matt, you brought up Jake Cronenworth in the National League. And Cronenworth, funny enough, is the guy who leads both of them in OPS, even though he's not considered to be the power hitter they are. He's really racked up a lot of doubles. He's played second base. He's played first base at a, you know, really an astounding level. Uh, first base especially, it was jaw-dropping. When we're talking about rookies this year, we are talking for the most part about 45 to 50 game sample sizes. And Cronenworth's an interesting case because he's not someone who is a super high draft pick. He's not someone who is a top 100 prospect. He's not someone who is seen as this tremendous impact rookie. He was seen as a good player. He won the International League batting title last year at AAA Durham. Scouts all around the game at that time said, I like this kid. I think he's a good ball player. I think he's a major leaguer. He has good at bats. He puts the bat on the ball. He plays solid defense. Um, but what he's doing now has really surprised even people with the Padres I talk to. So the question I have for you is, is this sustainable? Again, Jake Cronenworth, good player, absolutely sustainable. But hitting over 300 with a 900 OPS, how much do you believe? I think the, the power is a surprising thing. I know he bunched a lot of his home runs early in the season. Um, but, you know, the, the batted ball metrics still look very favorably on Cronenworth. So I think 
the ability to hit for average, the ability to hit doubles and draw walks, I think that's all for real. And I think he's going to be, like, especially if you can put a player like this in like a second base, you can put him at second base or maybe occasionally shortstop. I think that's going to enhance his value quite a bit. So I think Cronenworth as like a 60 hitter or, or better, I think that's for real. Yeah, I think for me, when I look at Jake Cronenworth coming into the year, the view that I had, having seen him at Durham, and the view most evaluators had, having seen him at Durham, is good player, move around the infield, be that, you know, kind of everyday utility guy, play short, play second. You know, apparently he can play first too, move him third if you need. Um, just a good player, good athlete who will help you. So again, I thought he was going to be part of the Padres roster long-term and a valuable piece of it. You need good utility guys who can play all around to win. But for me, he's elevated himself to, this is now the Padres' long-term second baseman of the future. I do our Padres list for the prospect handbook every year. A big part of that is we line up the projected starting lineups four years down the road. And for me, previously, Jake Cronenworth was kind of the first guy off the bench to play second base and short, that middle infield reserve. When I do my starting lineups this year, he's going to be the Padres second baseman of the future. I think he has solidified that spot, and it's now going to be up to other players to take it from him. I do believe that his outbreak is real to that point. Again, do I think he's going to have a 900 OPS over the course of his career? No, but everything he's showing now with the quality at bats, the bat-to-ball skills, the doubles power, yeah, this is a very good everyday player who at the very least should be an above average everyday second baseman for the foreseeable future in my book. I agree. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, Matt, I want to jump in with you on some additional rookies to keep an eye on moving forward. Before we do that, a quick word from our title sponsor, MyBookie. It's summertime, and at MyBookie, that can only mean one thing. It's winning season. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means free bets, super contests, survivor, and more. At MyBookie, winning season is all about your chance to win big. Bet NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, Major League Baseball, UFC, and more. The craziest sports sum of your lifetime is here. It's really simple. Make your picks, win big, collect your cash, invest in your intuition, select from hundreds of future bets, or you can bet games in real time with MyBookie's live betting. Put that big brain of yours to good use. Use promo code BASEBALLAMERICA and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you bet. Thousands of cross sports wagers, props, and parlays await. Sign up now to bet with the best and celebrate your victory. Your winning season begins today only at MyBookie. Matt, one of the other things we've seen this year is a couple of rookies coming up and I want to say surprising us because there was some inclination in a lot of ways that there was something there with these guys. But every year, there's always rookies who surprise. And we're dealing with small sample sizes, so you don't want to go overboard. But there's always some interesting underlying things you see that give you an indication that there's something real there. There's two left-handed power hitters that you've previously highlighted in your Fab Five, and we've talked about one of them before. The other is a fairly new revelation. And that's Jared Walsh with the Angels and Jose Marmolejos with the Mariners. You're big into looking through the data, seeing the signs for something being real. You believe in these two guys. What is it you see? Okay, so with Walsh, um, last year in the major leagues, he, he hit the ball hard, but, you know, had some had an exaggerated load, as you pointed out in that wonderful gif, that gif this morning. Um, and 
didn't really get a lot of results. You know, big league pitchers reading him alive, exploiting him where, where he couldn't, where he had holes in his swing. Um, but if you looked at his AAA numbers, he was pretty well balanced in terms of singles and doubles and home runs. You know, he drew walks. So I think with the, some of the swing changes that he's made this year, I think we're really beginning to see some of his natural talent come out. And I do think there's legitimate power there. You know, he's 25 plus home runs in the minors pretty regularly the last two years. Um, like you watch him every day. Like how, you tell me about how noticeable his approach and his swing is the difference from last year. Oh, it's enormous. I mean, I was talking to you about that for weeks now where last year, my concern with Jared Walsh when he came up was just there were so many moving parts. There was such a noisy load. His swing path was so long. Pitchers were just finding the holes and exploiting them. And we see that a lot with some of the AAA sluggers. They get up to the majors and their holes get exploited. The adjustments he made this year, and again, we're talking about a 22-game sample, but you, you can see it. The electricity in the hands is shorter and more direct to the baseball. The holes have been closed because he's really quieted that load and quieted all his moving parts. There's something real here. And, and he kind of is one of those interesting cases to me of, I think a lot of times we can see on paper, oh, you know, 25, 26, AAA, playing a place like Salt Lake, kind of throw the numbers out. But there were indications. I had talked to scouts who said, I think there's something there. I talked to coaches in the Angel system who said, I think there's something there. And the athleticism he showed as a two-way guy who could pitch, to me, this is a case of you can't just look at the numbers and say, oh, you know, 25, 26-year-old Salt Lake, you know, doesn't mean anything. You have to keep in mind that everyone was playing the AAA ball last year, and he outperformed all of them. He led the PCL and OPS. You had a two-way athletic background. You had good ports from both opposing scouts and his own coaches. I did our PCL top 20 last year. I didn't rank him because I was so concerned about the way his swing looked in the majors and thought he was going to get exploited. But in reality, you trust the scouts. You trust the athleticism that these guys can adjust. And we're seeing him adjust. Right now, he is the Angels' long-term first baseman of the future. Not Matt Seiss, not, not anyone else. This is their guy, and he's crushing it. He is. To, to that point, he is um, second in the major leagues in uh, barrels, stat cast barrels per plate appearance. Your favorite stat, Jared Walsh, number two. Um, and Jose Marmalejos is 36. So, I mean, even when Marmalejos was hitting – you know, buck 50 and got sent back to the alternate site. His exit velo and, and launch angle and barrel rate were all really good. So, I mean, I thought there was something there, even at that point in time, the Mariners called him back up in late August. Um, you know, he's not, a, he's not a super athlete, but he's, he's adapted to the outfield. His natural position is first base. Um, and he's continued to hit, you know, especially against right-handers. And I think he is going to be a part, especially for the rebuilding Mariners. You know, it's hard to say what his eventual role will be. But for the near term, I do like Marmalejos quite a bit. Yeah, I think for me, so you mentioned he got called back up in late August. Uh, I was there. He was called up for that doubleheader in San Diego. And I was there. And I saw him homer in both ends of that doubleheader. And it wasn't just that he homered. He was hitting moonshots out to right center at Petco Park. That is not easy. Left-handed hitters at Petco Park, that's where power goes to die. If you're a right-handed pole hitter, you can hit a lot of bombs. If you're a left-handed gap hitter, it's really, really, really hard. 
and he was crushing them. And to me, that was the indication of, okay, this power is real, and he's getting to it in games. There's something here worth watching, and you mentioned since then, again, small sample sizes, but you mentioned you saw the underlying promising exit velocities. A guy who consistently hits the ball hard, good things are eventually going to happen. He's got nine extra base hits in 16 games since. And more importantly for me is we're seeing him control the strike zone better. Five Mm -hmm. walks to eight strikeouts. His overall on-base percentage, if you look at it, his strikeout to walks for the entire season is not great. But if you look at what he's done since he came back up, it's really, really promising. I agree. I think he had one walk before the demotion. And I think in another positive sign was he started hitting and the Mariners moved him up. He was batting cleanup the other day. And this is also a lesson in if you're going, like this is a wise minor league free agent sign by the Mariners, but if you're going to take on one of these reclamation projects, make sure he has some value to reclaim. And with Marmalejos, he, he was a prospect for the Nationals. They're two-time minor league player of the year. Um, good averages, gap power, drew walks. You know, now we're starting to see some of those doubles turn into home runs, and I am encouraged. You know, we talk about late bloomers, and there's actually, I have a story coming out in this month's issue of Baseball America about top 100 prospects for late bloomers. A lot of guys who didn't really figure things out until they were 27, Dylan Bundy being a prime example this year. We're talking about guys in that age group. Jared Walsh, 26 now. Jose Marmolejo's 27 now. This is when these guys are breaking out. And, and there's two even later breakouts that we've seen this year that have kind of piqued my interest. And I want to go back a little bit. Again, I ranked the PCL top 20 last year. And it was a weird year to try to evaluate just because of the ball and how much I was screwing with everything. And even, you know, scouts were trying to figure out, okay, what's real, what isn't. But Austin Nola and Mike Yastrzemski were two 29-year-olds who played very well in the Pacific Coast League. And then the kicker was they came up to the majors and they kept hitting. So I looked at them as two guys. I'm like, they're 29. They're playing with a juiced ball. You know, the goal of our league top 20 prospects every year is here are the 20 guys in this league who are going to be the best major leaguers, the the 20 best future major leaguers that were in this league this year. And with Yastrzemski and Nola, and to a lesser degree, Walsh as well, I looked at, okay, you know, they're already this age, you know, what are they going to do over the course of the careers, you know, how much this is real versus triple A ball. And I left all three of my PCL top 20. And that was a mistake because watching what these guys have done into this season, Nola and Yastrzemski especially, this is, these are real, above-average, everyday major leaguers. I mean, Yastrzemski especially is, is a stud. He's one of the best players out West. And I wanted to circle back with you a little bit because I feel like we need to, as a whole, there's, in the prospect world of things, there's so much inclination to say, eh, he's old for a level, it doesn't count. But there are times it does. And we've seen that again, Yaz and Nola being our two latest examples. What are some things people can look at to see if it's quote unquote real versus if it isn't? Well, for me, we have the, the wonderful StatCast data, which is freely available now. I mean, you can look at things like hard hit rate. That's probably the number one thing I would look at if you wanted to boil it down. Um, things like that and plate discipline. You know, does the, does the player chase out of the zone a lot? Does he make contact in the zone? And does he hit the ball hard? Like if he matches 
those requirements in the majors, then yes, I agree with you. I think we're seeing now that players can get a lot better. You know, I think some of the old ways of looking at things maybe, you know, maybe are just outdated. I think we're, we're kind of in a new era of player development that way. Well, I think the biggest thing for me is, is how quickly guys can change their swing. Look, it's never easy trying to predict the future, whether you're talking about real estate, stocks and investments, or trying to project baseball players. There's always going to be surprises. There's always fundamentals you can look at, but there's always going to be things you don't see coming. And these are two guys, again, you give them credit. It's funny, you kind of hit on, you know, my philosophy is find me guys who hit the ball hard, hit the ball often, and stay in the strike zone. Exit velocity, contact rate, chase rate. And for the most part, these guys have done those things. They hit the ball hard, they hit the ball often, and, and they stay in the strike zone. And if you can do that, you can be an effective major leaguer. If you can hit, someone will find a spot for you. And those are three critical components of hitting. You know, in future years, as we rank especially the AAA leagues, you know, PCL and IL, how do you kind of figure out, okay, this 29-year-old who raked, he might still actually be better than this 22-year-old who didn't perform as well, but, you know, he's younger for the level and you can rationalize it any way you want. I just, I, I think it's going to be fascinating to me for a prospect evaluation moving forward, separating out which of these guys is real. It is the eternal question for us, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that thing, like, that's always the question at any level, no matter what age. But I think just this, this dynamic of the 29-year-old AAA guy playing with the juiced ball, but it's still real. Deciphering that is, is kind of an f- interesting and fun challenge in my head, at least. <laughs> Maybe I'm just a crazy person. But so those are some of the, the older players, again, we talked about rookies, we talked about late bloomers. The other thing we've seen this year is a wave of rookies come up here at the end, just like we do every year. There's always September call-ups, but just the way this season has worked this year, we're going to have a group of guys who came up here August, September that are still going to be rookie eligible into next season. Who are some guys, Matt, that have played, whether it's the bulk of this season even, or just, you know, a, a chunk of the season? that you feel like have shown you enough that going into next year when they're still rookie eligible, they should be near the top of the list for, you know, likely rookie of the year candidates. Okay. So yeah, for me, the guy who kind of um, was the flashpoint for this whole idea was Cabrian Hayes, you know, looking at Cabrian, uh, looking at Hayes's numbers the last two years, double A, triple A, they're good, you know, not great had lots of tools and we continued, we continued to stay on them. We ranked him high in our top 100, ranked, ranked him high in the pirate system. And I think he's proving why we were faithful to him in our process because he hits the ball hard. Um, he's got the number one hard hit rate in baseball now at um, 25 batted ball threshold. And with all of his supporting tools, I mean, he, we're, we're looking at potentially 60 hit, 60 field, 60 run and 60 throw. You know, we don't know exactly what the power looks like, but, his first major league home run was to dead center. And I think that's a good sign for his power. So I think this is a guy to me who should be viewed as one of the favorites for the NL award next year. So how do you kind of go there? Just given that we're talking about a 13 game sample, 46 plate appearances, again, the major leagues are all about adjustments. Just to use another example this year. I mean, Luis Robert got off to a crazy hot start for two weeks, looked like a golden God out there. And since then, he's hitting, I believe, sub-220 with a sub-280 on base percentage. The league always adjusts every year, every rookie. There's going to be a point where you know, they hit a slump and they're going to have to adjust back. And that battle, that push-pull of adjustments and counter-adjustments continues throughout their major league career. 
what is it you can see from, again, from a data stack has standpoint? Because the eye test, there's no question. He passes it. That's a huge component of this. But just looking again at the underlying inflammation that makes you say, yeah. Yeah, the one red flag with his early performance line is the strikeout rate, 28%. So it's highly elevated from his minor league rate. So that would be the concern. I mean, everything else looks good. He's got the number one exit velocity, according to the fan graphs here, among rookies. It's 96.7. <laughs> it's like four miles per hour higher than anybody else. So, um, and metrics like that stabilize pretty quickly. Um, so he might not be 96.7 average for his career, but it's going to be in that vicinity. His walk rate's good. And for me, like seeing him at the 2018 future game, Futures game, he had two batted ball hits of 100 miles per hour or greater. He had a 10-pitch at bat, in which he drew a walk. Like that – I know it's, it sounds ridiculous to say it, but that game convinced me that he was, he was the real deal. No, I mean, again, it's something that we always battle with. Again, you can see someone look good on any day, bad on any day, but there are things you absolutely see that stay with you. And, you know, the more I've done this, the more I've realized that, yeah, you actually should trust that because – there's a lot of traits that are important to see. And if they show it to you, particularly playing against the best of the best, it is worth something. Matt, who are some other guys that have come up here? Again, maybe it's 50 at-bats, maybe it's 100 at-bats, but they're going to be rookie eligible into next year that you feel like are going to be contenders based off what they've shown you this season. Okay. Um, a couple of National League pitchers, National League East pitchers. Uh, Sixto Sanchez uh, of the Marlins is pretty amazing. There's kind of like shades of, of the Reds, Luis Castillo here. When you're talking about this level of velocity and this level of changeup quality, I think, I think he's a number one starter um, and he's done nothing to disprove that with his early performance. So I really like him. And um, Ian Anderson of the Braves is just so much better than I thought. And when you look at what he's doing, he's got an incredible ride on his fastball. He's got that vertical break, you know, as they say on his fastball that makes him very tough to time and square up. So those two pitchers I like quite a bit. Yeah, you know, these are two guys just scheduling and, and kind of the way everything went out. I never got a chance to see Sixto pitch live, and I got to see Ian Anderson pitch live after he was drafted in rookie ball. So I, I didn't get a chance to watch these guys in person a whole lot, again, with my assignments and, and how everything worked out. But I mean, six though, to have that stuff with that control, if you can have that stuff and keep it in the strike zone, you're going to be really, really, really good and have a lot of success at the major league level. It's really been electrifying to see, and I agree with you. This is something that I think is real, and we are looking at a potential front of the rotation starter. Um, you know, we at Baseball America, we actually went back and looked. We had him ranked higher than any of the other prospect sites coming into the year. And even I'm like, I think it was too low at 15, 16, whatever it was. To me, again, that stuff with that control. If you want mm -hmm. to tell me this is the number one pitching prospect in baseball over Nate Pearson, over Mackenzie Gore, I, I would not fight you. I really would not. And then looking at Ian Anderson. So to me, I remember having this discussion and this debate with, with a couple people on our staff. And to me, this was a little bit of a case of, you kept hearing all the stuff. It's just, you know, no, nothing pops. Nothing, nothing looks great. But the guy throws strikes. He has multiple pitches he can throw strikes with. He knows how to pitch. 
he's durable. Like all these things that you actually need to be a successful major leaguer. I think so many times we fall in love with, oh, you know, it's 70-70, but it's 45 command. And if you just make that work, like the guy who has four pitches he can throw for strikes. And, and by the way, just because his stuff didn't necessarily light up a radar gun doesn't mean it's not great stuff. There's other ways stuff can be measured than just what the radar gun says. We've seen it with him. And again, I was watching one of the Braves games. He was starting, and the Braves broadcast was really just blunt about it. You draw a comparison to him and Kyle Wright. You know, Wright has all the the great stuff, the huge velo you want to see. But Ian Anderson's the guy who throws strikes and can pitch. I mean, Ian Anderson does not match Kyle Wright's velo. Guess what? Opponents are hitting a buck thirty-three against his fastball, while Kyle Wright's is getting lit up whenever it's in the strike zone. And to me, it's just a classic case of you have to watch the guy pitch. It's not just what their raw pitch grades are. Watch them pitch. Watch the swings batters get off against him. Watch what the quality of contact is. And um, again, I thought this was a really good pitcher, but you're right. What he has shown, his ability to step in right away into a you know, playoff-type environment with the Braves really trying to push for the NLE's pennant here. It's been impressive, his poise, his control. Everything he's doing, um, you know, just give him plaudits. Yeah, I think that is a good lesson you mentioned about repertoire with these pitchers. I think I know I am guilty of getting fixated on, and I'm not sure if you're re- referring to me with that discussion. I wasn't actually referring to someone, to two <laughs> other people I was thinking of, but we're all guilty of it to a degree. Yeah. I tend to fall in love with, you know, show me the guy with multiple 60s or better, you know, but there is something to be said about being able to locate different pitches to keep batters off balance and to work different parts of the strike zone. I think that's the lesson I'm taking out of this year is to place more value on pitchers who can do those things. Well, well, I think it goes back to a pitch can still be a 60, even if it's not the the filthiest action in the world or the highest velo in the world. How Ian Anderson's stuff is playing in the major leagues. His fastball is absolutely a 60. His changeup is a Mm -hmm. 70, maybe an 80. And his curveball is a 60 as well. I remember thinking back a few years ago, this is a, kind of a weird example, but the best slider in baseball, there was a two-year span of it, was Jolie's Chassines. It was not, you know, one of these guys with a, you know, 91-mile-an-hour slider with the nastiest break in the world. It was this shorter slider that, you know, the velo was just kind of was what it was. But when you look at the results at the major league level, which is what we're all trying to measure here, when you put a pitch grade on a guy, it's how is this going to play in the major leagues? It was an 80-grade slider. And for me, again, you absolutely want guys that have multiple 60s and multiple 70s. It's how we measure those and the ability to locate, the ability to mix your pitches, the ability to you know, keep batters guessing and off balance. That all plays into that. And I think sometimes we lose that when we just go into, oh, it's a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. We're putting a 60 on it. I agree. And, and the ironic thing is, yeah, is that Ian Anderson is does have this really high grade fastball without the velocity that you would associate with that grade. You're right. Although in fairness, it has been ticking up this year. I remember uh, last year, the report that we were getting on him in AAA was he was really sitting more 92, 94. In the past, he turned up to 97, but AAA last year when he got up there, it was a lot more two to four. This year, he's actually kicked it back up. And as of this recording, he's averaging 94.6. So there's another component to that too. If he's shown you the ability to get to 96 and 97, 
it's still in there. I actually want to go back to Lucas Giolito with this. He was 96 to 100 when he was younger. And then when I saw him at AAA, he was 90 to 94 with not great command, but you had seen it in there earlier. He was working through some mechanical things. And now that he's in the majors, his fastball is averaging 94 again, averaging 94.2 last year. So I think there's something you said for, if you know what's in there and you can get a little more than maybe he's showing you, that's something you have to consider as well. Oh, just one other rookie to mention here would be the Orioles' Ryan Mountcastle, um, last year's International League MVP. Uh, the, the numbers he's been producing so far are great. Uh, you know, you like, you like a lot of the things you see there. The improved walk rate is nice. I think he's a faster runner than we expected. And he's hitting a lot of home runs. But let's not go crazy here. He's not, he's not a Jake Cronenworth quality hitter. <laughs> <Scott Kest. laughs> but... Yeah, I, I'm also encouraged by Mountcastle. He would be one other guy I mentioned on the AL side. So I had him in my preseason top 100. And while we're talking about taking lessons, and again, you don't want to go crazy. We're talking about small sample sizes with all these guys. Mountcastle to me is the classic case of this guy has hit. He's always hit. He's always projected to hit. He won the AAA International MVP award last year. And I, look, I was very concerned about his arm. I, I, I was not going to work at third base. I questioned if it was going to play in left field even. He's, he's out there right now, and he's, holding, he's doing okay. At the end of the day, if you can hit, they will find a spot for you. And I just remember going back, and there's so many conversations about, oh, well, what's the profile? If you can hit, someone will put you in a major league lineup every day. They will find a spot for you. And to me – that's just something that we know. And for some reason, it feels like when people get deep into draft discussion, prospect discussion, again, you have to keep in mind pedigree. You have to keep in mind history. And if you think a guy will hit enough to, to be a first baseman, those are all important. I'm not saying you can't talk about it at all. But when a guy has shown you he can consistently hit every step of the way, they will find a spot for you. And I think the most important thing, you know, we always talk about upside, upside, upside. The number one driver of upside in the major leagues, what makes guys the best in the major leagues is their bat. It's what they do at the plate. And if you can hit, that gives you upside. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, yeah. If you, if you do pass us, if you exceed a certain threshold offensively, you know, there's really not a whole lot of reason to uh, focus on what you can't do. And Mount Castle, again, for most of his career, has exceeded that threshold. He's exceeding that threshold now. Again, I'm going to say this for a third time. Every single one of these guys, there's going to be a regression. The league's going to adjust to them. They're going to have to adjust back. But you see things, again, I'm more high-test guy. I believe in watching guys, knowing what it looks like at the major league level, seeing how everything plays. But there's underlying data to support all of it. It just, you know, the case builds. Regardless, it's certainly been an interesting season. There's an interesting future ahead, and uh, these final 10 days of the regular season are going to be interesting. Matt, is there anything in particular you are excited to see here as we head into the final 10 days? Oof. Yeah, I mean, the uncertainty of the National League playoff race is probably the most exciting thing. You know, for us, for, for Baseball America, you know, finalizing our Major League Award winners, player, rookie, things like that. But those are probably the two things I'm focused on. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, just seeing what these playoff races are going to look like. I will admit it is kind of fun having 
this many teams, you know, still in the race here as, as we approach the end of the year. And the Yankees, now that they're fully healthy, they're charging hard at the Rays. I think that's going to be really fun to see how that shakes out here uh, over the final 10 days of the season. The Dodgers, you know, with their series win over the Padres, kind of gave themselves, I think, the National League West title, but three and a half games with 10 games to go for the Dodgers and 14 games to go still for the Padres, that can be made up. So I think for me, those AL East and NL West races are still the most fascinating and also seeing which slumping players can figure things out. I mean, we see every year guys have a rough month and a half, rough first two months, you know, April and May, and then they pick it up in June. You know, this year it's basically the equivalent, you know, struggling for two months. And then by the time they normally pick it up, in some cases, the season's over. So seeing if guys on the Cubs, for example, Chris Bryant, Javi Baez, if they can get hot here these last 10 games for them and, and carry that into the postseason, that's going to be huge for the Cubs postseason outlook. Some of these Phillies pitchers, both in the bullpen as well as the back of the rotation, if they can lock it in here, these final 12 games they have, that's going to significantly change their postseason outlook. The Reds are charging hard. If that team gets into the postseason, no one wants to face that top three of that rotation. There's just a lot still going on here. There's a lot of things that can still happen. And I know I'm looking forward to seeing all of it. Yeah, well said. All right. Well, uh, I think that will do it here for another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. Postseason talk, player development talk, rookie talk. We do it all. We love it all here at BA, and we'd love to hear from you guys as well. Once again, for Matt Eddy, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay safe out there. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.